All righty. There we go. Americans, um, we're not terribly savvy when it comes to sheep. I think it's because we see them so rarely, we tend to view little lammies romantically. And what I mean is, in those rare moments when we picture one of those sweet little cuddly little playthings, we, we, when we make one as a toy, we make them plush and squishy, because that's how real lambs must feel, right? We sing songs celebrating Mary's good fortune in having had a sheep, especially since the wool is so snow white and all. Really? But did you know, lambs aren't anything at all like those perceptions? Among all the domesticated livestock, they are the most helpless. Sheep will spend the entire day grazing without ever lifting their head, which is why they're so prone to getting lost. Sheep are also, by nature, followers. They have zero homing instincts, as most other animals do, so that not only can they not find their way back to the pen at night, but if the first sheep in line jumps off a cliff, you know, like your teenager, uh, the whole flock will obediently follow. I'm putting this link up just so you know I'm not lying. But back in 2005, 1,500 sheep jumped off a cliff with 450 of those guys dying in a pile. Why only 450? Well, the first several hundred created a soft, billowy, snow-white pile, of course. To put it bluntly, sheep are stupid. Have you ever seen a sheep in the circus? No. They're too dumb to train. You can train a snake, but not a sheep. Sheep are so dumb, if a swarm of flies are buzzing around their eyes, they'll go beat their head against a tree to the point of death. And forget the cute, cuddly part. We're talking ugly, matted, gray wool wrapped around this chunky body, supported by four scrawny, little spindly little legs. Just saying, a sheep would never get the rose on The Bachelor. If attacked, a sheep won't fight back. They just huddle up together and whine. All of that to say, I'm not sure it was intended as a compliment when Jesus, knowing sheep, called his followers sheep. In fact, the only redeeming factor in being called one of Jesus' sheep is that he volunteered to be our shepherd. Isn't it reassuring to know that although we are stupid, stinky, and stubborn, at least we have a loving shepherd to protect us and to love us? Now, in ancient Palestine, sheep weren't raised for their meat. It was all about their fleece. The wool would be shorn, taken to the market, but the sheep would live on. So it was not uncommon at all for a sheep and a shepherd to be together for years, maybe decades. And that's why Jesus tells us in verse 3 that the shepherd calls his own sheep by name. Now, whether that's Bubba or Stinky or whether it was a whistle or a whine in the voice, it's obvious that there was relationship. So that no matter what they were doing, if a sheep heard the voice of their shepherd, 
even if they were in a pen intermingled with several other flocks of sheep, when the shepherd called his flock by name, they would stop whatever they were doing and they would come, leaping and dancing because they were once again reunited with their caretaker. So, after a long night of separation, they would hear that voice and they would come and set out on a new day with their shepherd. Do you see it going before them? And the sheep following him? Why? Because they know his voice. And then at nighttime, the shepherd would bring his flock to a large sheep pen, a pen that was shared with a lot of other shepherds and flocks. The pen was nothing more than a rough enclosure of rocks piled into a wall with an open space where the sheep could enter. And it was at that opening where every night the shepherd would stand, use his rod to inspect his sheep for any wounds that may need to be attended to. After that lengthy process, one of the shepherds of all these differing flocks would lie across the opening and serve as guard for at least one watch during the night, basically serving as a door. And he would sleep there for two reasons. Number one, to prevent predators from getting in. Jesus describes them in verse one as thieves and robbers. But then second, the shepherd would also lie at the door or be the door to prevent the sheep from getting out. And it's that image that Jesus has in mind when he says in John 10, I am the door of the sheep. The seven, the third of seven I am statements by Jesus in the Gospel of John. I am the door, Jesus repeats himself in verse 9, adding, if anyone enters by me, he will be, what? Say, enter by me and only by me and you will be saved. But understand, I'm the only door through which you can get to heaven. Only through me is salvation possible. And in case you doubt my interpretation of Jesus' words, Jesus circles back to this same theme several chapters later and gives us this famous line, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, because I'm the door. I'm the only door. And there you have it, the single most outrageous claim ever made by Jesus. The one most politically incorrect quotation that rankles people still today like none other the claim that leaves Jesus almost universally dismissed as narrow-minded, intolerant, and downright bigoted. Why? Because Jesus had the audacity to claim that he was the only way, the only door, the only means by which anyone can hope to get to heaven. And therefore, every other faith Every other supposed way, every other so-called door through which people might pass to live eternally with God, it's a lie. If you really want to get to heaven, the only way is through him. He's the door, the only door.
Well, <laughs> given that four out of five earth dwellers believe in a God other than Jesus as God, is it kind of arrogant for Jesus to make such an audacious claim? And even more for those who follow him to perpetuate this notion that we are right and everybody else, Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, all of them are, dare I say, wrong. In a world that seems to revere diversity, to hear Jesus claim that he is heaven's only option, it is offensive. Rabbi Boteach calls Jesus' claim spiritual racism the audacity to say he's the only door leading to God. It's almost like giving permission to all of the followers of Jesus to go around singing, nah, 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 we're right and you're not. Especially given the fact that we live in a world with endless options in virtually every arena of life to have Jesus come along and say, there is no other option. It just seems out of tune. And so many people, including some in our own ranks, find Jesus' words too incredible to swallow. I mean, it's true. There are a lot of well-meaning Christ followers who have become so indoctrinated with our culture's love affair with relativism, we've convinced ourselves that all religions are all equally of value. They're all true because the only acid test for authenticity these days is if somebody sincerely believes it's true, then it's got to be true, right? And that's why a whole lot of people, including maybe you, you want to know why is it that Christians are so insistent on trying to convince other people that our door is the only door? Why? Right after 9-11, a reporter called me, wanted to know about the resurgence of interest in religion that followed in the aftermath. And we had a great talk for a while until I mentioned my hope that this revival would result in a whole lot of people taking another look at Jesus and maybe even coming to know him as their savior. And as soon as those words left my collagen-deprived lips, our warm conversation froze. What are you saying, he demanded. Are you saying that unless the rest of the world believes in your Jesus, we're all going to hell? I tried to give a thoughtful reply, but it was obvious. To him, I was a bigot. I was a narrow-minded stooge. So he ended the interview. I didn't get a chance to depend, defend myself, and yet I knew in the moment his argument wasn't with me. He, he's, he's doing battle with Jesus, because Jesus is the one who said it. He's the one who claimed, I am the door. Whoever enters through me will be saved, but no one will come to the Father except through me. And that's why, fellow believers, we do. We've got to try to convince as many people as we can, no matter how unpopular our message may be. But this message 
that this faith that we hold to, it does claim, don't dance around it, it claims that what a person does with Jesus Christ has everything to do with where that person will spend eternity. Listen, if you believe that the one you worship is the Savior of the world, if you believe that, then the risk of offending someone in order to save their soul, isn't that a gamble you got to take? But if instead you believe that religion really is just, I don't know, a choice or a cultural construct, then every religion is the same. Maybe you've heard it. We're just on different paths, but we're all heading to the same place, right? And that's why some mixed faith couples cut a prenup deal. If you agree to have our child baptized, we can raise him Jewish. Huh? What? Makes sense if your religion, religious convictions are akin to how you choose what you're going to watch on Netflix. If the faith that you follow is only a matter of how many thumbs up it gets, then the substance of your faith, it's not even a thing. However, if your religion is not a preference, but instead if you really do believe that you have been chosen, the stakes are higher, aren't they? If the one you worship really is the door, if he's the way, the gate that leads to heaven, then you will endure whatever heartache may come your way if it means taking as many people with you to heaven as you possibly can. But see, this is more than an eternal destiny issue. Convincing others that Jesus is the door, it's also an obedience issue. Because if you do believe that Jesus is the Lord, that means he's Lord of your life. And part of what he accepts expects from you as Lord is that you tell everybody you can get your hands on that Jesus wants to be their Lord too. I love how Peter describes this responsibility every believer has. In fact, he gives us three things that we got to do in order to fulfill that command. The first thing is, he says, you got to get personal. He says, set apart Christ as Lord in your own heart. In other words, evangelism isn't an obligation until you do the business in you. You can't take somebody where you've never been. So before you show anybody else the door, be certain that you have made your own wholehearted commitment to Jesus Christ as Lord of your life. And we're going to give you an opportunity to do that before we're done today. Second, Peter says you've got to be prepared prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. And I got to tell you, we do have answers, folks. This faith is fundamentally defendable. But let me ask you, have you researched your answer? Peter doesn't say that you have to have every answer to every possible question, but do you have an answer for why you believe? Little Bobby was drawing a picture, and his teacher said, Bobby, what are you drawing? I'm drawing a picture of God. But Bobby, nobody knows what God looks like. They will when I'm through. We're a picture of God. Third, you got to make it appealing. you got to make sure that you keep this 
already offensive message of the gospel, and it is, you got to do your best to keep it palatable. So when you give your reason for the hope that you have, Peter says, do it with gentleness and respect. In other words, don't be a jerk. Do you realize that how you say what you say is almost as important as what you say? And the problem is, culturally, folks, we Christians come across as so defensive and so argumentative and so arrogant that all people hear from us is attitude. Somebody once asked Gandhi why he never became a Christian. He said, I like their Christ, but I don't like their Christians. Ouch. Nietzsche agreed, saying, if you want me to believe in your Redeemer, you're going to have to look a lot more redeemed. Hmm. I love this Indian proverb. It says, once you cut off a person's nose, there's no point in giving him a rose to smell. How true. And so maybe you believe and maybe you believe strongly, but if your Christian hot sauce is turning everybody off, they're not going to listen to anything you've got to say. So stop doing that. Stop looking at it as, as winning another battle because in the process of winning the battle, you could lose the war, which is that person's soul. Peter says when you get the opportunity to explain why you believe, always do it gently and do it with respect. That word respect in the Greek is phobos, from which we get phobia. In other words, witness with a little bit of fear. Why? Because when somebody asks you why you believe, in that moment, you really are the visible representation of the invisible God. There has just been laid upon your shoulders a gigantic assignment to communicate God's truth. The privilege of sharing with another person how they can come to God. And that really ought to strike at the core of your heart and cause you not to get angry, but to tremble and to say in your heart, Wyatt, you better get this right. Don't you mess it up. So there it is. Because eternity is at stake and because Christ compels us to do this, we got no choice. We must do whatever we can do to convince people that Jesus is the door that leads to God. Peter's advice is especially important when you realize that when you talk to people, there will be questions, a lot of questions. For example, early in the conversation, someone will say, but what about the people who have never heard about Jesus? That native in the Ecuadorian jungle, what's God going to do with him? Can I show you how I try to answer that? It's a long answer. Will you stay with me? Really? <laughs> no. Okay, thank you. One person. All right. Here's how I try to answer. Well, God hasn't told us how he's going to deal with that native in the jungle who's never heard the name of Jesus. And it's true. The Bible very frankly says that there are secret things that only belong to him. Did you know that? God's chosen to keep some things secret. And this is one of those things. But here's what we do know. We know, and this is not a small matter, we know that God is going to be fair. 
no matter what, God will do the right thing, always. The Bible says, will not the judge of all the earth do right? And the implied answer is, of course he will. The Bible also says he is the rock, his works are perfect, all of his ways are just, a faithful God who does no wrong. Our God is going to do the right thing. All of his ways are just, he does not do wrong. So if you're one of those that may be struggling with what about the 1.8 billion Muslims who have never heard or the tribal natives who have no clue that Jesus of Nazareth even existed, if that's kind of tripping you up in your walk of faith, just understand, although we don't know what God is going to do with that, we do know he's going to be fair. But Steve, how could God condemn somebody who never heard of Jesus? I don't know. And I agree, it doesn't seem fair but I do fundamentally still believe he is going to be fair. When all the facts are in, every puzzle piece is in place, the one thing no one is ever able to say about God is that he was unfair. So hold on to that if that's your question. He will be fair. So I believe that Jesus Christ truly is the only door leading to heaven, the only way we can live with him forever. I do. I believe that. Yeah, okay, Steve. But um, doesn't the Bible say that everybody in the world will instinctively know that there is a God? Doesn't it say somewhere that nature itself declares the glory of God? And not only that, doesn't it say that in the Bible that, that a person's own conscience will make this stuff clear to them? What is the truth? I mean, what you got to say about that? Well, it is true. Nature does point us to God and, and draw our heart to worship him. But the problem is nobody can know on their own accord how to approach God, how to connect with God, how to do anything that would be acceptable to God. Well, why not? Because they don't know Jesus, right? So, they may perform rituals or they may do sacrifices or whatever their religious deal, but it's all in vain because acceptable is something that only happens through Jesus Christ. Okay, but how do we get from only through Jesus to God will always be fair? I don't know how to make that bridge, okay? But as the Apostle Paul once said, I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished. And so here's what I can tell you I do strongly believe. I believe that the crucified Jesus is also the resurrected one of God and our only way in. See, I've studied the facts and I've come to believe these things are true. And so I embrace the truth as Jesus gave it, not in arrogance, I'm just telling you, this is a surrendered heart. Now, if I get to heaven and God says, yes, yeah, Steve, those people are lost, he'll explain it to me, and, and it will be a fair deal. And if I get to heaven and he tells me that there was something else I wasn't told about, I know that God's something more will also be fair. Now, I've never fully satisfied anybody with that answer. 
But what convinces people is a humble and surrendered heart. So even though this answer may seem insufficient, people, here's the bottom line. We can't be more merciful than God, nor can we be more just than God. All we can do until Jesus gives us more, we must believe, as he said, that he's the only door. We must also believe, as far as we can know, that a person really is lost for eternity unless they come to God through faith in Jesus. We must be content that when eternity comes, we will learn of God's perfect solution, and it will be fair. Okay, that's only part one of my answer. You ready for part two? <laughs> Not as enthusiastic. This is something we can know. Great assurance here. God is within the reach of everyone. No matter where a person lives, no matter the dialect that they speak, the Bible says from one man, God made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. In other words, God is in charge of maps, not Google. And God did that so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though hmm, he is not far from each of us. Wow. Wherever you were born, God put you there. Whatever family you were born into, God birthed you there. Whether it was Tremonto or Toronto, God put you there. And he never makes a mistake. So even if your religious background is Hindu or Muslim, whatever, it was not a mistake. If your background and religious training was far different from the teachings of Jesus, God will, and maybe he already has, God will create circumstances that will point you in the direction of the eternal truth of who Jesus is. Maybe that's why you are here today. Sometimes that happens through creation. Other times through a time of suffering or adversity. But God's deepest desire for you is that he connects with you. And because he does not want anyone to perish, he doesn't play keep away with any of his children. He makes himself always reachable. And we know that because he is never far from us. Did you know that as far back as the first century, people complained because Jesus hadn't come back yet? He said he was coming soon, but he hasn't come yet. I mean, they were up in arms. It's been 25 years. What's up with that? Why won't Jesus come? So Peter wrote them and he said, hey, guys, stop rushing the process. God isn't as late as you may think he is late. He's restraining himself because people you love don't yet know Jesus. He's holding back the end times because he doesn't want to lose not even one of you. And so he's giving us time and he's giving us space so that we ultimately come to repentance. So God is fair. He's within the reach of everyone. Do you know what that means? Man's problem isn't finding God. 
our problem is deciding that we're going to seek God. See, most of us, quite frankly, kind of like doing our own thing. We love to live oblivious to the spiritual realm, but God, whenever anybody does decide to seek him, when we're ready, God is reachable. He is. He is. In fact, God made a huge promise a long time ago. He said, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. Anybody see any geographical limitations there? Or maybe any religious backgrounds that would hinder God's promise? No. He said to everyone, if you seek me, you will find me. And Jesus said it too. He said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find, knock, and what? The door will be opened wherever you live. If you seek God, you will find God. In fact, the book of Revelation describes the crowds as they gather among those who make it to heaven. They're surrounding the throne. You may remember it says that there will be people from every tribe and every language and every people and every nation. That includes Africa and Afghanistan, North Korea and Iran. It's going to be breathtaking when we see it all in panoramic view as Jesus already sees it now. In Acts chapter 8, there's a frustrated pilgrim from Ethiopia. Every year this guy leaves his homeland, travels to Jerusalem, jumps through some religious hoops, and then goes home. As far as he could tell, that ritual was supposed to make him closer to God, and so every year he would do it. Trouble is, although he had made this pilgrimage for years, his heart never was satisfied. Somehow, he got a hold of a Bible. God has a funny way of making himself known. And this man started seeking. Trouble is, he was an accountant, not a pastor. So it was like me trying to read a spreadsheet. Hey, ain't happening. So he's about to chuck the whole process when God sends in reinforcements in the person of a regular Joe Christian named Philip. Somehow that happened. <laughs> No, I know how. God caused their paths to cross. Philip noticed that this guy had a Bible, and he said, you making any sense of that? The guy said, are you kidding? It's Greek to me. <laughs> a little pastor humor, go home, talk about it. He said, no, I don't, but I sure wish somebody would explain it. Well, Philip not only explained it, he actually led the man to faith in Jesus that very day, and then he baptized him right on the spot. They parked the chariot, walked out into the water, and got baptized. And you can do that too. In, in the footsteps of the Ethiopian eunuch, all you have to do when this message is over is head for the new here cart. We've got all the gear that you could need. Please don't worry about outfits and clothing and the like. All you need to do is, is, is bring your faith. See, God will get it done. Anytime anybody decides to seek God, he will make certain that you will find him. So if that question is part of what's been bugging you, what about those who have never heard? J just don't sweat it. God is going to be fair. He is already in reach of all of us. 
and he makes himself to be found among all those who seek him. Okay, maybe that's not the greatest answer. Maybe you got a better answer. But here's what you need to know. He's going to be fair. He's within reach. And he will be found. Now here's the thing. When you offer that answer to someone, you need to also say, just understand, when you stand before God, and all of us will someday, the big issue is not going to be, yeah, but what about those people who never heard? The big issue for you is going to be, what did I do about what I heard? Because eternal salvation isn't about the other guy. It's about you. If you've never personally connected with Jesus, that is where you got to start. And as soon as you turn that corner and make that personal appeal, you know what's going to happen next? That person is probably going to say something like, yeah, but, um, you know, Jesus, the only way to God, isn't that kind of narrow? Yeah, it's extremely narrow. Well, then how can you say such a thing? Implication, uh, you're a bunch of snobs. You see, in this consumer-driven culture of ours, people tend to approach the gospel and eternal salvation like it's Baskin-Robbins, and you get to choose your favorite flavor for a savior. Because after all, Jesus, he's just one of the menu items. And since there's more than one way to get an ice cream fix, you just go with what you like, right? Because it doesn't matter what ice cream you pick as long as you're sincere, in which case I'd have to agree with the snob comment if that's really how salvation works. But see, Jesus didn't give us 32 flavor choices, just one. And the real truth is there are many rocky roads, um, many roads, but ours is the best. That's not the message. The message is there's just one road. There's just one door and one gate. You see, the gospel message demands that the penalty for my sins gets paid for. But since I'm a real mess, that someone can't be me. See, somebody who has no sin has to pay the price for my sin and your sin and yours. Argue all you want about that, but that's how God set it up. When you get around to creating your world, you can set it up your own way. But since Jesus is the only one who managed to go through life without any sin at all, and since he was also the only one who was fully God and yet also holy man, Jesus alone is qualified to be our substitute. A statement that isn't at all snobbish if it's true. Many of you know that I have chronic kidney disease. And according to my doctor, the only cure for this disease is a new kidney. Now, I could scoff at my doctor and suggest that he couldn't possibly know that. I mean, how do you know that's the only way? For all you know, a cantaloupe could be my path to healing. Or dipping in Warm Springs, Georgia. How arrogant of you, doctor, to say what you need, the only thing that will do the job is a kidney. No, doctor, that may be your truth, but it's not my truth. 
Steve, I'm telling you the truth. Look at me. I've done the training. Look at all these cool diplomas up here. I know how to treat this. You got to trust me. Do you think anybody would accuse me of being narrow-minded if I decided to listen to my doctor? Of course not. That's not being a snob. It's not being a bigot. It's acting in accordance with the truth. In the same way, only Jesus has the cure for your disease, that terminal illness that is in all of us called sin. He alone is the great physician. He alone has the cure. So you can try other methodologies, maybe a Tibetan prayer wheel or going on a pilgrimage to Mecca or no longer eating certain foods, but none of that's going to do the job. Or you can just ignore the problem and hope all of this sin stuff goes away, but that's not going to cut it either. You might even sincerely believe that there will come another way, a far more acceptable door through which you can pass, something other than Jesus. But your sincere searching will be in vain. The way to God is not a matter of your personal opinion. A lot of people really do believe it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere or that one religion is good as another or that we're taking different roads but we're headed to the same place. But they're all, it's not, it's wrong. It's not the truth. That kind of lofty sentimentality sounds appealing. It sounds right. But the truth is, in the end, it is horribly wrong. And what I find so maddening about this is we are willing to accept that truth is narrow when it comes to kidneys or other areas of life. Take music, for example. Can you imagine the sound that they would emit if the band started playing in the key of C and Eli started singing in A flat? It'd be awful. And forget that Eli's sincere. The resulting noise would create nerve damage. Why? Because truth is narrow when it comes to music. If it's in the key of G, don't play it in F minor. If it's written in 4-4 time, don't play it like it's a waltz. Don't mess with how the composer conceived it. Play it as written. It's also true in football. This afternoon, in fact, going on right now, maybe your favorite team is playing. The ref spends more time under the hood these days than actually calling the game. Because he's trying to find out whether that wide receiver who was streaking down the sidelines inadvertently stepped out of bounds. And so he plays and replays and we wait and go to commercial and then the broadcasters play and replay. Everybody's looking for a little bit of green between the shoe and the sidelines. Why? Because that little bit of green matters. So the whole game comes to a standstill until the ref comes to midfield and says, the ruling on the field is confirmed and everybody erupts or maybe they throw up but what you think it doesn't matter let me ask you would you be caught dead on an airplane if the pilot e ignored instructions from air traffic control probably how about this would you fly on an airline if the company policy was oh well, you know one runway is as good as another no, uh dude, if my whiny hiney is up there, I want my crew flying by the book. 
And that's how it is. All across the board, every discipline of life, medicine, engineering, computer science, architecture, the way is always narrow. So why, why all of a sudden when it comes to eternal life, everything is up for grabs? It's not. It's not. And your personal opinion will not determine the truth of end time any more than your sincerity can determine that truth. And since Christians believe that there is one God who exists in three persons, and since Muslims worship Allah, which means the one and only God, and since Jews believe that the Lord, Yahweh, not Allah, is one, and then you've got Hindus who believe that most every living creature is God. My point is, we all may be wrong, but we can't all be right. So like it or not, and a whole lot of people don't at all, the way to God is exactly as Jesus claimed it to be. Our Savior said a lot of outrageous things. If you want to be great, you've got to serve. If you want to be first, you must go last. If you want to be up, you've got to go down. If you want to have, you've got to give. If you want to live, you must die. He said all those things. But the most outrageous thing is I am the door that leads to God, the only door. And no one will come to the Father except through me. Sounds outrageous, but it's true. And that is exactly what Jesus said, and it's what he meant to say. He didn't say, I am a way, one of many possible ways. He said, I am the way. Others have come along and said, I can show you the way. But only Jesus claimed, I am the way. Others have said, I can show you where the door to God is, but only Jesus said, I am that door. And not only did Jesus make such claims, his disciples who came along after him affirmed over and over again the, 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 the oneness, the authority, the eternal destiny that made possible through Jesus. Peter said, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. John said, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever rejects the Son will not see life. Now, maybe you're sitting there thinking, man, Wyatt, you are insane. How can you stand up there and make such claims that Jesus is the only way to God? It's simple. It's because Jesus said it first. And I'm willing to take whatever hits may come because my Bible says that a day is coming when at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Do you see that? Every knee, every tongue, everyone. On that day, every living being, the angels, the dead and departed, those still living, the tortured residents in hell, even Satan itself, himself, all will bow the knee 
and the high and lifted up name of Jesus will be formed by the lips of every person who has ever walked this planet. And in unison courts, we will all, every one of us, every single one, will declare, Jesus is Lord. But something else is also going to happen on that day. Because on that same day, the master of this world is going to rise up and shut that door. And once it is shut, it will never open again. What I'm telling you is everybody's got to draw a conclusion. And the truth is, Jesus really is Lord. And sooner or later, all of us will agree. It's just... Sooner is better. Sooner rather than later could be the difference between being saved forever in the glories of heaven with Jesus and being lost forever. Sooner is the difference between heaven and hell. Listen, Jesus Christ either is the door that leads to God or he is not. So right there, 50% wiggle room, right? So if you believe, as I do, that Jesus really is the Son of God, that he is the only door that leads to God, let's say it turns out at the end that he is everything he claimed to be. Guess what? You win. You will be saved. I will be saved. And you'll have an eternity to celebrate the wisdom of what was a very unpopular decision here on earth. But if you believe that Jesus is the Son of God and it turns out that he's not, you still don't lose, right? No harm, no foul. The only way you can lose is if you bet against Jesus. The only way you can go bust is if you stake your eternal destiny on your own opinion that Jesus was just another man. And I don't care how you slice it, that is not a good bet. In the book of Revelation, Jesus wrote a series of letters, and in one of his letters, he pictures himself standing at the door of a person's heart, and he's knocking. There's a famous old painting. Some of you just flash to it. That's the scene. The door of heaven is knocking on the door of your heart, and he's pleading with you, here I am. I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. And what is this meal? It's called the wedding supper of the Lamb. And all of us are invited. But only you can open the door. So let's do that right now. Would you bow with me, please? If you have never invited Jesus Christ into your heart, if you've never placed your trust in him as your personal savior, I'm going to invite you to pray this prayer with me. And if you have already received Jesus and you've been walking with Jesus for years, it will be your joy to also pray this prayer after me. Let's do this together with surrendered hearts, praying as you repeat after me, God, I am a sinner. And my sins have messed up my life. And I am sorry.
I want to invite Jesus to come into my heart and to be the Lord of my life. I trust you, Jesus, as my Savior. And I will follow you as my Lord. If you just prayed that prayer and you meant it with all of your heart, please go to the lobby. Tell us of your decision. I invite you to be baptized today. If you've believed this your whole life, but you've been wandering and there's something, God's been calling you back. You've never been very far from him at all. Maybe this is a time of recommitment. I urge you to make that known. Father God, I thank you for Jesus. This this message that he alone is the door it is it is one that sometimes we shrink from but it is the truth of the gospel lord change some lives today don't let us walk from what we have heard amen